Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Western Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Krebs. Dan Matthews is here again this week. He is in the road, on the road coming back from South Carolina with the family. I'm sure there'll be some stories, and we're going to do a little BS session before we get our guest in here um, for episode 59. So how's it going, Dan? Man, it's going pretty good. Just been on the road all day and uh, still have about four hours left, but... Dude, life has been good. Traveling, moved into an apartment, still getting that buck hard horned on my trail camera. And I'm just waiting, man. I just keep hoping every night at like 1030, he's there. And I'm like, please just shake your antlers off right there on camera for me. Oh, that would be the dream. That would be sweet to get like a like a three part picture of your buck. Fully antlered, shaking his head, no antlers to hit your phone. Yeah, that's kind of my hope. I haven't, I, I haven't had any other bucks hard horned um, until last night. I had one that had a single spike on it, and that was on a different camera. But everybody I've seen, I mean, it seems like people are collecting sheds all over the place. So I wonder why in my neck of the woods they're, they're holding on so long. Yeah, speaking of sheds, you missed a great episode last week. Uh, we had Branson Krebs on, who, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, is I just found out is my cousin. So that's pretty cool to have a cousin from Montana that's a full-time outfitter, and he finds a ton of sheds every year. He, uh, Dude, the more, the more I can talk to people who find sheds, the better I feel like my odds are going to be. But at the end of the day, I think I'm just a crappy shed hunter. Well, Branson finds... He said last year he found 200 whitetail sheds and about 50 elk sheds. Holy cow. Yeah, that would be the dream, man. Yeah. He was talking. We talked a little bit off air about, like, being cousins and trying to get together on a hunt or something, and they just picked up a new lease, 80,000 acres in southeast Montana. And when they were Holy cow. walking at the first – I mean, this is like an outfitter lease, right? Like, this is part of their business. They don't really get to hunt it. But when he was hunting it with the landowner and the landowner's sister to kind of, like, walk around, take a look at the property, but then also I think part of the deal was, like, he was supposed to help, like, guide the landowner's sister on an elk or a deer. And they're just walking by elk shed after elk shed. And they're not saying anything. They're not picking them up. They're not pointing them out. And so Branson's like, what is going on? And he's almost like afraid to ask because this was his first contact with the landowner and he's trying to make a good first impression. And so eventually they split and he's guiding the sister and he's like, so what's kind of the deal? Do you guys usually like walk by all these elk antlers? And she goes, yeah, we don't really pick them up because they're like big and bulky and kind of like hard to carry. They're kind of heavy. We don't really like do anything with them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Dude, I, yeah, I want to get on a property like that, man. Oh, he said it was phenomenal. Like, we're walking past match sets, big browns, 
He's like, that's a 350-inch bull, like, just walking by all these sheds. He talked to the landowner, again, just recently before the podcast, and the, the landowner mentioned that they have to go work this set this weekend cleaning off their alfalfa center pivots for whitetail sheds. Otherwise, they'll pop all their tires. And Branson's just thinking, like, oh, uh, hello, pick me. I volunteer. Yeah. Yeah, did I did I need a hand with that? I mean, I, I'm happy to volunteer my services. Right? No kidding. So hopefully hopefully in the future years, uh, Branson and I will be able to meet up and do, like, a shed hunt. He's super busy this spring building a house. I'm super busy this spring, you know, getting done with residency as me and my wife look towards buying or building a house later this year. So it's not going to work out this year, but hopefully next year and the future years we'll be meeting up for a, a long lost cousin hunt. Yeah, man. Uh, well, we've got some big news, you and I about shed hunting. Yeah, we do have big news. Uh, just finalized the plans. What this last week? Yeah, we finally, we finally set a date to get out with Steven and hopefully find a ton of antlers. I mean, the pictures that he's been sending us in the group texts have been mind boggling. And I'm like, if, if we find half that many sheds in our trip out there, cause I mean, a lot of these pictures are single day. Yeah. Where like he goes out and they just find a pile. And I'm like, man, if I can find like a couple nice sheds that aren't completely chalky, I, I mean, I'd be happy with chalky ones even. But if I could find a couple of brown sheds, oh, man, I'd be over the moon. Yeah, my goals for the trip would be to find a good six-point brown elk shed and a good four-point brown mule deer shed. Like, I'm not even talking big. Like, just a good brown elk and a good brown mule deer, that would make my entire trip. Oh, yeah, just nice and clean. I feel like one of us is going to find a match set. My, my fear, what I would hate – I mean, it would still be cool, but I would hate to, like, find the second antler and somebody else found the first one, and then I have to give my antler up to complete the set. Or, yeah, I don't – we'll have to talk about, like, shed ethics because I probably wouldn't care that much to keep it matched unless it was a freak. But, yeah, like, what if you're, like, walking a line and all of a sudden you see my dog Grizz – come flying out of nowhere, drop his head, pick up an elk shed, and run back to me. And you're just like, well, I didn't see it, but I would have, like, stupid dog. <laughs> no, what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring a super soaker to use as, like, one of those spray bottles for a dog. So if he gets in front of me, I'm just going to spray him, like, no, no, bad dog. <laughs> right, yeah. I've always told people when I shed hunt with him in Grizz, I'm like, hey, you're probably going to see it before him. So if you do, just be like, hey, I see one, and then let Grizz find it. And even if he brings it back to me, like, I'll give it back to you. But I just want to keep him on antlers and keep him getting better and better. And so I've always said, like, if Grizz is in front of you, just call the antlers before he finds them. Otherwise, if he just drops his head and picks them up, he's going to count them as his and then bring them right back to me. Well, that's going to work to my favor because as soon as I see him get alert, I'm going to be like, oh, I think I see one. And yeah, I'll just wait to see if it actually is one or not. When he's running and he just <laughs> stops on a dime and spins around, you're like, yeah. oh, I got one over here. <laughs> uh, yep, think I got one. Yeah. I'm curious to see how he does with elk sheds because I would assume the the visual aspects of a shed are going to be better for him because it's bigger. The scent aspects yeah. of the shed are probably going to be stronger. So I'm hoping he does better on elk sheds than he even does on whitetails. Yeah, what – I mean – 
the freshness of them, obviously you're hunting fresh sheds there, but they've got to put off a lot more scent when, shed, when they drop sure. fresh. Yeah. For they, sure. I mean, there's just such a, it's a much larger pedicle and just the overall shed itself is so much bigger that hopefully he's just on top of it and he's finding them left and right. He is sight trained and scent trained. And I did work with him a lot with a set of elk sheds I bought when I first got him. I bought a set off eBay just for that reason. But that was a few years ago. So I suppose I could start playing around. I have two little raghorn sheds behind me. I could start playing around and at least get him back on track for like scent and sight on yeah. a small one and just make sure he like doesn't run past a big brown elk shed, hopefully. Yeah, that would be – I mean – the thing is, unless we see it, we're not going to know. Yeah. And so, like, I'm sure there's going to be those that slip through the cracks. But knowing Steven and knowing how good he is at what he does and the spots that he has, I feel like we're going to get into them. And, I mean, when we talked, he said there was very few times that they've gone out and got skunked. Yeah. He talked like, yeah, we've got – like we've we've gone out and not found any before, and then I'm like, oh no! Like, what if like that just our luck that happens to us? And he's like, but like only on like one walk or like one day, like never on a whole trip. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Hopefully, it's not like the freak. Oh, this is the first back to back days that I've ever had. Um, but what what all are you bringing out? in terms of like gear while we are actually shed hunting not necessarily like camp gear but like for optics are you bringing a spotter just binos uh what are you thinking for that i will definitely um i will definitely not go west without my spotter that's just the point i am in life i don't necessarily need say i'm gonna yeah. carry it every day or bring it out of the truck but i'm just not going west anymore without my spotter i will carry my binos um every day but that brings up a good topic because I'm split 50-50 down the Leopold Vortex line. And so um, if Vortex is listening to this and they want to help make that better, um, I've been leaning more towards <laughs> Vortex lately. But the two pieces of optics I would both be bringing are Leopold 1024s and a Leopold spotter. Nice. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I'll be bringing all my Vortex gear out. Similar to you, like depending on Steven's recommendation, if we get into a spot where he's like, you know, we're not going to be glassing super long distances, then I'll probably leave that back. But if he's saying like, hey, we're going to be an open country, we're going to get up on a hill, glass a little bit, see if we can pick some out, you better believe I'm bringing that spotter. Because that, like glassing for sheds is, glassing in general has turned into one of my favorite hobbies, but glassing for sheds when I'm out hunting I have fallen in love with it because typically if they're on the opposing hillside that's facing you, you can pick them out plain as day. Yeah. I would, I'd really like to see what Steven says. Cause if we get to a spot where it's like, Hey, we're going to park here, run this finger Ridge down. And then like, we'll, and then we'll jump off and start shed hunting. Like I would be okay with running that finger Ridge down um, bringing the spot or setting it up, glassing the whole area before we take off. And then if, like if worst case, I just leave my spotter there and mark it for the day. And then on our way out, just pick the spotter back up. Or if we hunt a spot and then we got like a couple hours of light left and we go like just basically glass tomorrow's spot in the last hours of light as that like setting sun is just drilling this, the, the slope that's really might make yeah. them shine. So it'd be interesting to see what, 
what Steven's like strategy is. I'm obviously just going to do whatever he says, like a little golden retriever. Um, Yeah, no, I think that's smart. You know, going off of his recommendation, obviously this guy's got more experience picking up sheds in that kind of terrain than you and I have combined times five, you know, but uh, I'm, I'm just pumped to get out there. And it's funny because I told my brother that we were going to be going out uh, to Colorado to shed hunt. And he's like, oh, dude, you should totally come up here. He's in Steamboat Springs now. And he said they were driving around just looking for animals the other day. Oh, yeah. They came across about 700 antelope. He said they saw 28 bulls all together still holding. Wow. And I can't remember. I think he said about 250 mule deer they saw. He's like, so if you want, you guys should totally swing up here and check up here for sheds too because, you know, I found out where all the animals are. And I'm like, well, it's a matter of getting the permission as well. You know, it's one thing to, to see the animals, but to get permission on the property that they're on when they drop, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of elk sheds, uh, I see our guest is here today, Ryan Carter. Ryan is also a huge elk shed hunter and finds some monster sheds every year. So let's get him in from the lobby and let's fire this episode off. What do you say? Sounds good. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Hey, folks, welcome back. We got Ryan Carter in the booth right now. Um, as we said earlier, Dan is on the way back from South Carolina with his family. So if you hear any road noise, that's just to be expected. He's going to hop on and off mute as we go. But Ryan, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. Beautiful Sunday. It's March. It's March. Shed season is rapidly approaching. Um, in terms of shed season, Utah just finally joined the rest of the western states with a shed closure. How's that treating you guys out there? Uh, it's probably needed this year. Um, we have record depths of snow. Some of our ski resorts are reporting 600 inches. Um I see there are dead deer and elk everywhere. In fact, right here behind my house, there was a herd of about 21 does that kind of cruised into a canyon three weeks ago. They've never come out. I'm sure they're dead. So, um, you know, as a sportsman, it's our job to kind of watch out for wildlife. And if there's a chance that we're going to push them, I think it's a good thing we're kind of laying low. Yeah, I, I definitely agree, and you see a lot of commentary on the Utah shed closure, and a lot of people obviously are emotional about it, and they're saying, you know, why should we not be able to do what we want, but everyone else can do what they want, snowmobilers, bird watchers, and, it, it you know, to me, it's like, well, yeah, but, like, snowmobilers might cruise through a valley, but they're not trying to, like, go right where the elk are bedding. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. There's already harassment laws in place. Like I, I hate when we do mandates like masks. It makes me mad. Yeah. 
Um, but as a sportsman and as a guy who just loves wildlife, I, I'm okay with just waiting. I, I know it doesn't work. I know people are going to go anyway. Um, but a shed isn't as important to me as seeing bull X make it through to next spring. So but like, it's okay. Yeah. And talking yeah. about bull X. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dan. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, if you can, if you can look past the, you know, current season or the current uh, position that you're in, whether it's shed hunting or, or actually chasing after big game animals to the bigger picture, you know, if you can, if you can prevent a population or a group of animals from being pushed out of a feeding area as it's coming close to the end of winter, it makes sense. And those sheds are still going to be there. Somebody else might come and pick them up, but if nobody's supposed to be out there, hopefully they're still in that same spot when you, when you come back to look for them later on. Agreed. Heck yeah. The odds are high. You know, the, the big thing about right now, everyone's excited about, uh, all the water right everyone keeps using this word moisture and i hate it but there's a ton of water coming down we have a ton of snow and everyone's excited like this year's just going to be awesome you know one thing people need to take into account is, is body fat i like elk and deer don't do well on antler growth the following years their body fat isn't high um so yeah we're getting a lot of water and i'm sure the animals that make it are going to bounce back but we've got to be able to do our best to let these animals kind of just creep through the last like three months of hard, because in all reality, until about May 31st, these animals are going to struggle. Yeah. And you've definitely got a unique uh, viewpoint on, on these animals because while some guys like to just go out and find some antlers, you're tracking these specific bulls for a long time. I mean, I've been following you for, ever since I had my North Dakota elk tag. And even then it's like, Hey, here's the, this is MJ. He's got the yearly update. Here's chunky monkey. We're back on him this year. I mean, you're following some of these bulls from the time they start really showing some character at, you know, four five, six, all the way up until the end of their lives. Sometimes it's 12 years. You're following this bull for six years in a row. So you really get that viewpoint of what, what this animal's life is like, not just this shed season and two antlers. Right. Well, yeah, I, that's what I enjoy. I, that antlers are fun to find, but I, I like I like scheming. That's that's the word I like. I, I like following these animals and trying to figure out their routines and their patterns. I, it's hunting. It's it's not the kill that I really love. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I like all of it, and I like all bulls, whether they're six or fourteen, but. There's some bulls that I really think set a hook on me, you know? Yeah, for sure. And and then being able to track those year after year. I mean, you're doing a lot of trail cameras. I thought I had a lot of trail cameras back home on our whitetail farm, and then I started hearing you talk about trail cameras. And then picturing, you know, it's not a whitetail farm where you're driving a ranger around to every tree, and you don't even have to get out to check them. You're going miles in with a backpack full of batteries. That's a whole different landscape of putting trail cameras out. Yeah, we, we do some work, that's for sure. You're playing, you're playing like the computer version of chess online where it knows all of the moves, and me and Brian are over here playing checkers on a board that we crafted out of materials that we found at our house. <laughs> yeah. It's all the game, man. It, some versions are harder, that's all. 
that's all. I do have to jump in. I forgot to hit the record button, so I'm going to hit that right now, and we'll um, capture some of this video because there's definitely I want to I want people to be able to see Ryan's backdrop because Ryan has a bull that he calls Chunky Monkey. He's followed this bull for a long time, and it is probably one of the best backdrops we've ever had on the podcast. This thing is a toad. Oh, I don't think there's a question. That is definitely the best. I mean, Ryan, don't get me wrong. I love your shed rack behind you. It's phenomenal. But, dude, that bull, I'd trade a lot of those sheds for just an opportunity at that bull. I would, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's – there's something about Big Elk, and that's originally what drew me to your page and following your story, Ryan, is I got that once-in-a-lifetime North Dakota elk tag that had some really good bulls in that unit. And then from the second I started Googling, like, Big Elk, how to how to locate a big bull, how to stay on a big bull, I mean, it was like your name was every other source. Like, every other podcast was, like, tracking big bulls with Ryan Carter, whether it was a gritty episode or, or someone else's, and then all these, like, Instagram uh, hashtags kept pointing back to your page. And so I, that's when I really started understanding, like you're taking this big bull, this big elk game to a whole new level. Well, that's nice of you to say. I, I screw up just like everybody else. I, but I, I do like trying, like that's my, I love trying. I'm cool with it. I think the difference is, you might learn things that didn't work along the way, but you don't stop. You get back on that bull. I remember one story. I don't know. It, it's You hunt with a Kyle a lot, and I don't know if it was Kyle or not, but I think you guys were after MJ, and something happened. It didn't quite work. He he came in, but he was too far away, and, and I remember the podcast. You really just told him, like, hey, he's going to be back in 12 days. You can keep hunting but I don't expect we're going to see him for like 10 or 12 more days. And sure enough, like day 19 of the hunt, he, he came back on his pattern and he got him. And so I think that's the difference is a lot of people would be like, Oh, it didn't work. Let's go chase this other bull. Yeah. Well, Kyle's a different breed. And, and this is that, I mean, this is a credit to Kyle more than it is me. Um, and the, what he did is he walked in on him in the dark on his way to his tree stand. And I mean, he, he kind of got up. He wasn't like super scared. In fact, he didn't run real fast. His, he was so wide. That bull, oh, if I remember right, he's 57 on his inside. Like he's stupid wide. Um, when he walked away, he just kind of tipped through the trees and kind of did his thing. And I, But I still told Kyle, I said, odds of him coming back between our next 10-day window are just bad. Like go home. And the problem with Kyle is he just won't like he sits on these elk till it's go time. And to his credit and perseverance, that bull finally came back in and killed him. So. Yeah. To sit a tree stand in the mountains for 10 straight days. I'm sure he's sitting morning to dark, not taking any chances for one animal. And you're going 10 straight days without getting a glimpse of him. Man, that's mental toughness. Yeah. Yeah. That guy. I, last year he, he came again. Um, and I love having Kyle in camp. Like his his optimism is just, I mean, it's contagious, right? He, it almost irritates the shit out of me, but last year he sat for a bull. We call JJ for 25 days before I made him pull off the bull 
and go chase some other elk. And that's, I mean, it's a pretty cool story, but it, it kind of goes to show how dedicated that guy is. So when you say that Kyle's coming back to camp, I mean, you're hunting a super hard to draw tag in Utah, right? I mean, I looked at the odds and I'm in for it. I, I, I just jumped from like 0.2% to 0.4% chance um, that I'll get to come hunt with you next year. But so you guys are really leveraging like the Utah game and fish uh, tag auctions to be able to get your repeat clients back in camp year after year, right? Yep. Um, and the, I mean, to Kyle's credit, I, everyone has this opportunity. They, they auction off tags. Um, each unit, they take a percentage and they auction off specific tags for certain areas. Um, he likes to do this boulder archery hunt. That's, he hunted this bull. He, he sat on this bull for 18 days before I got mad at him. And then he almost killed another bull called Uno. And he, he's just awesome. But Kyle, it lives in North Dakota. He's probably up in your neck of the woods somewhere. Um, does well uh, via the oil industry up there. And that's what his goal is, is to try and buy this archery tag every year. There's only one. It's not cheap, but it's not terribly expensive considering the class of bull he's chasing. And that's his, that's what he wants. Like some people, you know, like I, some people like boats. Some people like ski passes. Kyle Ostrin likes hunting archery elk on the boulder. Yeah. I can't blame him. Some people like the chance at a 400 inch bull. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not the guy that would give up like, different hunts just to pursue one big animal but if it was between fishing i would give up fishing every year for the rest of my life to every other year get a chance at an animal like that yeah there's there's something about those big bulls and i think dan and i spoke briefly before the podcast starts but we're really interested in jumping back to the beginning like what got you into big bulls tracking them and like trying to put together the scheme as you said it like the pieces figuring out the puzzle on all these bowls and how how to consistently you know get opportunities whether they work out or not but you're pretty consistently getting on these bowls year after year um i don't know <laughs> what started me i did like it probably just some kind of sickness i guess um maybe my grandpa like he you know, he told me in my twenties, he said, Hey, you, you can like be good at one thing. You could be good at fishing or you could be good at elk hunting. You can't do both. And and he was like, but when you're my age, you should be fishing. <laughs> so, <laughs> I jumped into elk hunting pretty heavy. Um, I drew a tag in 03, um, killed a really nice, like 370 something bull. And for 03, Utah still hadn't cracked 400. Um, so that was, I, I figured my best chance at keeping on chasing these giant elk would be to start guiding. So I spent a couple of years with a small outfit, went into Christensen arms, um, started figuring out these elk on the boulder unit. And I, I think once I started figuring patterns out, once I started like getting on top of these elk, like there's a pattern to this one or a pattern to this one. I, I really think it kind of turned into a sickness for me because 
it was my goal to figure them out. And I, I'm a big whitetail hunter. And so I took a lot of the tactics that I had from learning how to hunt whitetails and just kind of shoved them into the elk woods. And I mean, it's different, but it's the same. Wallows are big scrapes. Like there, there's certain behaviors that kind of carry over. They elk have a lockdown just like whitetails do. They have a pre-rep pattern. Everything kind of follows the same suit if you know how to look at it from the right perspective. So once I started figuring out the pattern, I, I think, um, God, I think the hooks just got set. And then that's when you started being able to, to really apply it, to, to get back on these bulls year after year, or you see a bull and you know kind of where he's heading and that we should kind of expect him back in our area when he's done with his loop, right? Right. Yeah. Yep. So is that something that you think your average DIY guy can implement to some degree, um, assuming – you know, maybe he's going back to the same unit year after year. He might not be able to to spend 20 days like you and Kyle put towards a bull, but he's going back to the same unit at least. So the, the land is staying the same. Is that something that he can kind of start to piece together year after year, season after season, or is it something that you really need to be there for the whole season, kind of be a local to really put the whole puzzle together? It, it all depends on kind of what tag you have. And, and by that, I mean, like, you can't pattern rutting bulls. You just, you can't. There, there is a pattern. They have a routine. And that pattern can be done, I don't know, July and August. That pattern can be done January to February 20th. They have certain routines during certain times of year. But once the snow starts climbing, just like in shed season, the elk you've been watching since January, they, they go from, 6,000 feet to eight, five really fast. Um, same thing happens. Like once they start peeling their velvet and typically elk start shedding their velvet, August 20th, 18th. Um, but, and, and they'll stay in there and they, they rub, they kind of go nocturnal a lot of them and they sit and scrape all their velvet off and they'll stick around till about labor day. But once labor day hits, they're gone. So, to say like, I, I want to chase like pattern a bull and kill him. That only works if your season dates fit in that window. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. So, so to go back to your question, it depends on the tag you have, because if I had a rifle tag early season here in Utah, I don't care how many cameras you run. It doesn't give you a whole lot of intel other than figuring out what age class is, which is the goal of the camera in the first place, right? Yeah. But if, if I had a rifle tag and I knew I was going into this unit, I would pay more attention to where elk rut the years prior. That's why guides have the upper hand on a lot of these DIY guys that have waited 15 years for a tag is because the guides are there every year. They know right where these bulls go to rut it's a huge upper hand. The rut is a totally different game, but preseason, early season archery tags, you can pattern stuff. Yeah. That's a really good thing to keep in mind just for people listening. And they're like, Oh, this is, you know, Ryan just runs his, his whole same whitetail playbook on these elk. And it's going to work for me on September 18th in Montana. Well, probably not. <laughs> probably not. But I've, I, I would be like, I'd probably be your least favorite client 
because I've heard you talk about like what you do. You really love that August time frame, being able to put the pieces together, put a plan in motion, and basically ambush, right? I mean, you, you know the pattern. You get the tree stand. You, we're going to be in there early before he comes through. And then you've I've heard you say over and over again, like once Labor Day hits, everything goes out the window, and our only tactic is to rip bugles, right? We're going to start bugling bulls in, and we have no idea what's going to come in. It might be the bull you're looking for, or it might be 30 bulls before we get to the one you're looking for. But when you say stuff like that, I get super excited, like, man, to have 30 bulls on, like, a good day to interact with, that's the kind of elk hunt I would want. And I would just sit there and and soak it all in and then basically just shoot the last bull that comes in with the time we have left. Dude, I'm with you. That's not a bad way to go because – like that's why we're elk hunters, right? Like the, the rut is the romance. The rut is the drug. Um, that there's nothing wrong with that. I just like, when you wait 20 years for a tag, I, I tell guys like we want to do everything possible to optimize age class. And, and it's not even score. I try to tell them like, Hey, we're going for the older bulls. Even, even if my biggest bull that year is 365, that's what we're going to go for. We, we have to optimize and do what we can with the best we got. And I like age. Yeah. I think age, age before beauty is becoming the new norm across pretty much every hunting aspect. Even, even the whitetail crowd is starting to look more towards age than just antler size. Right. Cause you get fooled a couple of times. You get a two year old or a three year old that just looks like a giant thinking he's five or six and you shoot him and you realize, ah, that didn't really work. We can't just go off the antlers. It's, if you really want to manage the health of the herd, you really have to figure out how to age an elk, which I got to imagine that's kind of difficult unless you're doing it every day. Like what's the difference between like a five-year-old bull, an eight-year-old bull, and an 11-year-old bull? I don't think a guy like me could tell the difference, except for if you took the antlers out of the equation, right? You block those off and say, how old is this bull? I would be shooting in the dark. You want my perspective on that? Yeah. How do you how how do you go about telling like this bull is this age? No, I you can't really see it after a certain age. Um, Five and eight, there's a a really big difference. Five years old, their legs look really long. They're not. They're the same length. It's just their torsos seem to get bigger. That little ring, if you can see on that bull behind my head, this little part of their neck mm-hmm. kind of behind their ears, you'll see the head kind of necks down and then the neck bulges out. Yeah. Older age class bulls get these huge necks, just like a white tailed deer. And you'll see it just as they're feeding, as they're moving, like they have these big old fat noggins on them. Their, their nose actually looks like it shortens up. It doesn't, it's just thick kind of bottlenecking out. Yeah. You can see it, but not a lot of guys can see it. And then depending on where you're at, it's hard to tell as well. Like some elk just don't have the same genetics. Like I hunting that giant bull in Arizona a couple of years ago, like what was the C2020, we killed that 468. I kept watching that bull and the bull next to him looked two years older and he was only 390. And then there's this bull, the one we killed that was 460 something. I could see 200 pounds on the other bull. I could see the fat nose. I could see the bulls on the neck, the big belly. He had everything else to say, I'm that much bigger. But 
he still kind of moved out of the way for this younger bull just because his headgear was so big. I mean, and I probably would too. Yeah, I mean, that's – I like how you say he was only 390. Like, if we're talking about any other elk in the world, it'd be like, dude, that bull is huge. He's 390. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, did anyone – I suppose you spent so much time looking at both bulls as a part of that experience. Do you know if anyone got that other bull? As of last fall, he was still walking. Yeah. Okay, it'd be really cool to eventually, like – to close the story out on that bull too, and then age him. So you could look back and see how close you were. Like, was that bull really two years older or not? How big, how old was the, the, they call it the freak bull, right? The 468. Did they get, he was was only eight years old. Yeah. That's wild. Cause that my bull in North Dakota was eight and a half. And I, I will be completely honest. When he stepped out, I was not looking at how old he was. I was like, yep, that's a bull I would be happy to tag. And sure yeah. enough, I brought him home. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's – I sent you a video of a big bull, and that was kind of the first time I reached out. And I was I reached out thinking, like, this guy's super busy. It's getting close to hunting season. There's no way he's going to be able to, like, see this on Instagram and – and respond to me, and I get a voice memo from you instantly. And I was like, holy crap, he actually responded. And um, I remember that bull looked fat. I remember looking at that bull looking like he came out of a feedlot compared to the the raghorns we usually chase in, in general units across the West. Right. Uh, dude, that's what we do. We, we, we kill the nicest when we get close to you, right? Like, I, I always tell guys to focus on the wow factor. Like... Once we get into the rut, do, do we really need to scrutinize 15 inches? I mean, let's start looking at, like, does he make your eyes pop? Does he, is he what you wanted out of this whole thing? If he's not, let's keep going. There's more elk. There's always more elk. But sometimes it just feels right, you know? Yeah. I mean, if, if, if we were out and we had a bull that's just charging into us, I mean, he's big, he's mature. There's no question about if he's old enough but he just comes in charging, stomps right up in, seeing red. He comes into like 10 yards from the shooter. I mean, that's the kind of experience where that that alone is worth a bunch of inches, right? I mean, to have, you know, right, like fist-to-fist contact with a big bull, that's worth more than, you know, like you said, that 15 extra inches. I agree 100%. How often do you does that kind of happen and play out when you're – in the units you guys are hunting, is it pretty common you can pull those bulls right into someone's lap? Well, that I mean, that's the difference between over-the-counter tags and limited entry tags. You know, I, I deal with maybe 40 tag holders on a unit that takes five hours to drive around. And, yeah, all those 40 guys have 20 guys helping them. I mean, that's what we do, right? Like, you get a tag, and you want your dad and your brother and everyone there so yeah, there might be two, three hundred guys running around, but it's still a unit that takes five hours to drive around. So yeah, there's days like and in all reality, after day three, typically I don't see another guy through the end of the hunt. Um, except for like maybe on the roads when you're driving back to camp. Um, it it just seems like it you're limited entry, there's just a lot of bulls. And you've just got to sit and weed through elk. So it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> well, I called in 23 bulls today. It's really like, it, I mean, it, it's awesome. <laughs> but that's how it works. And and I always kind of bitch. I'm like, man, I hate the rut. 
but I, I don't. I love it. I just hate trophy hunting direct. I have to specify that. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine, I would imagine that with that many people out there hunting, but like you said, limited entry, most of these guys are hunting it smart. They're not going in and blowing out areas. And so even with, you know, like you said, two, 300 people running around, the actual felt pressure by the animals is probably nothing in comparison to an over-the-counter unit. Oh, but yeah, easy. I mean, it's, and, and, you know, it's, it's everyone's perception is a little bit different because there's places that you can hunt elk that you can glass every elk you hear, right? Like, or, or give it a couple hours, he'll eventually kind of move out to where you can see him. Um, where I'm spending most of my time where this guy lived, I don't even carry binoculars ever. Like if I see a big bull, I typically know who he is. Like I don't need to like sit and count inches and see what I have going on. So it, there's a lot of different in each pers perspective of each unit, but yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> I know it sounds so stupid, but 20, Calling in 20 bulls in a day, like on a limited entry unit, that's an easy thing. You don't have to be some, you know, professional caller. You don't have to be Rocky Jacobson, like a little PVC pipe. You do it. It's, it's pretty fun. Man, that sounds like I need to just move to Utah to speed up a couple of years off of the process of, of getting that tag and trying to experience that. Or like you said, I think on other podcasts, it's like, just buy a spike tag and come out here and bugle in a bunch of big bulls for a week and then hopefully find a spike at the end and, and bring some meat home. That's something to experience. I, I'm telling you like the opportunities there, it's, it's not like what I'm doing is something that is only reserved to some guy that makes a ton of money in the oil industry. Right? Like, yeah, it's nice having a tag in hand, but in all reality, to experience what I experience is hey, any guy can do it. If I can do it, any guy can do it. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's not uncommon for outdoorsmen, hunters, to have that once-in-a-lifetime hunt that they do. You know, like most people don't go shoot a big Yukon moose every year of their life right? Like that's the one thing they save up, they chip away at it and eventually they go. I mean that, and that could be the very similar thing to like the Boulder unit in Utah to have that experience, to be able to chase a 400 inch elk and to have regardless, have an amazing week, you know, hearing bugles and, and chasing down bulls and having all kinds of cool encounters. Like that could be your a guy's once in a lifetime thing. Like he's going to elk hunt the rest of his life, but he's going to do it one time where you hunt in like a magical unit. Right. And yeah, that, that seems just, like the beauty of the whole thing with hunting the West is that you can be building points in multiple states. And in some of those states that you're building points, you could still be going and hunting over the counter every year. And then, like you were just saying, Brian, once or twice or a handful of times in your life, get to go and experience a hunt where you are calling in 20 bulls. <laughs> Well, and if I can offer any, like any advice to guys that are building points in these States, you, you know, we always say once in a lifetime, but I can't, I can't tell you how many wives bitch at me about once in a lifetime hunts because every guy has 10 of them. <laughs> it, just, it ends up working out that way. And man, if I can t give advice to people, I'm like, you know, we got our big three, like 
I know there's 400 inch bulls in multiple states, but in all reality, your big three is Arizona, Utah, and Nevada. They are your once in a lifetime elk units. And they're some of the hardest ones to draw. If you ever get it, you're, that's probably your only chance. Um, whereas New Mexico, you could probably draw every one, every five years, depending on how aggressive you're being on the like good units. Um, Wyoming every 10, you know, you, there's places you can go every couple of years, like go kill some elk, man. Don't sit and wait your time for these big three States. Go to Idaho every year, like go kill some elk. It, it's just, it's, that's how you learn. It's, you're just going to fail and fail and fail and fail and then score, but you're not going to come to Utah with your 20 years of waiting and kill something decent unless you've got a few bulls under your belt or a heck of an outfitter team right <laughs> or one heck of an outfitter team yeah i can't imagine how much stress and anxiety i would have if i drew the boulder tag but hadn't gone elk hunting in 20 years like i don't know if my gear is good enough i don't know if my body's good enough i don't know if i'm going to make the good shot but you take that and you flip it and you say i've elk hunted every year for the last 20 years i've shot six bulls with a rifle i've shot five bulls with my bow i know what's going to happen i know how i'm going to react when that bull comes in i know my gears dialed in and then you go do that tag i mean you're going to have the the bull you shoot may not change right you might have an outfitter team that can get you the same animal but your experience along the way is going to be drastically different mm. so goes anything yeah. right you know you're going to the NBA playoffs. You've wanted to play ball a few times before, so you're more. Prepared. Yeah, I feel. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. I feel, I feel like there's there's that mindset now. I see it a lot more, at least with whitetail hunters, where they'll go out early season and shoot does, and they're like, I just want to get that like those jitters out. I don't want buck fever when the buck comes in. I want to know from my stand or deer spotting me. Are they? Are they winding me? What's like just getting the practice and the repetition of it and being able to perform under pressure on something like a doe or something like an over-the-counter elk unit is only going to elevate your game once you do get this tag or a tag in a much better area. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And even like, dude, just letting the air out of something makes you just feel better. <laughs> so. I, I love that thought. You know, I, I can't stress that enough, how important it is. I, I And even like trying to mentor young hunters, I'm like, man, take your kids to Texas. Go shoot some stuff. Let them have the experience of just letting the air out of a few things. It's going to make them feel more confident when they're here doing something that took them 10 years to get a tag or 15 years to get a tag. They, they have some experience. They're not nervous with a knife. They know how to open something up. Those small things are a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, I have a buddy that we're going to try to get on the podcast, and he did his sheep slam with a bow. It took him seven hunts to get them all. He did every one of them on the first hunt except the stone. No. Yeah, the stone took him four. He he hunted 49 straight days before his first shot opportunity across four hunts and he says he goes down to arizona new mexico because he loves elk hunting but also to like get him ready for what it's going to be like to send a forty thousand dollar arrow on a on a sheep you know like get that blood pump and he says every time he goes to the range he fires his first arrow at 100 yards cold i mean because there's no way you can there's no way you can possibly replicate it but 
that's better than shooting at 20 and then 40 and 60. He's, you know, right out of the bat, we're shooting 100. And so, but he says the exact same thing you did, which is let the air out of some things. Stock mm-hmm. as many animals as you can. Mm-hmm. Well, then that guy, there's a lot of wisdom in that. I, I'm the same way with my bow. I, I, I always, like 70 yards is my kind of punchline. I like 70 and I don't know why that is, but that's what I do when I get out of the truck cold. 70 shows you every flaw. Like 20 yards doesn't tell you anything. As far as a, from a hunting perspective, right? Yeah. Once you're dialed at 70, 20, 30, 40, it's no big deal. And unless something's wrong with your bow, which you got to go paper check it, you know. But for, for the most part, once you have that dialed, you can consistently hit those numbers. I've never shot a $40,000 arrow. So that guy's perspective holds a lot of weight. Right. Yeah. But, um, there's a lot of wisdom in what he's saying. Well, I mean, most of your clients probably are having that same perspective though. If they're going to buy the tag, depending on which tag they buy, if they're buying the, the all season, was it, you have one, they do like an archery or rifle and then one that's like an all season. Right. Yeah. 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 So those guys probably know exactly what that feeling is like, aside from not wanting to miss the animal, but just everything it took to get to that point as well. Right. You know, like you said, the once in a lifetime hunt, you told your wife you were going on for the last four trips and, you know, <laughs> all the pressure of being away from home and, and the buying the tag and getting the outfitter. And finally it's all here and they got one chance to not mess it up. And then you start thinking about that. And that's probably what leads to more people messing up their shot than anything is just worrying about messing up their shot. Panic. (laughs) Very, very valid panic. How often do you see like a client starting to panic when they got a giant bull in front of them? Do you like, I've, Kyle sounds like he's just a stone cold killer. So maybe not him, but someone that's kind of new, like they drew the tag and then they reached out to you and said, Hey, I drew the tag. Can we hunt together? Do you ever see people like start to panic? Like they just start losing it when there's a giant bull coming in. Yeah, I, that's, um, man, these, these 20 year tags that just comes with the turf. That is, that is part of the whole thing. Um, I see it a lot more in rifle guys who try to come do archery than anything else. Like rifle guys tend to lose their stuff after day five. Like they're not <laughs> like what we do. And I was just like, dude, it's only day five. Like relax. <laughs> Tomorrow's a better day. But you know, it seems like the archery guys I get in are typically a lot better, a little more composed, and, and they, they understand their success rate's only 30%. So, you know, seeing somebody panic, that just happens. And, and in the moment, the nice thing about like rutting bulls is you screw up one shot, it's a matter of getting the wind right, getting to the next draw, getting in front of them, go again. You know, that's when you want to be in shape because you can get that four times in a day sometimes but before the rut ambush hunting from a tree you panic you miss that shot that might have been a forty thousand dollar arrow for sure that's wild that's another level of pressure that i have yet to experience but like i said i'm i'm building those utah points utah is my hail mary state um I haven't started Nevada yet. That's probably something I should look at. Arizona, I'm actually treating more like a 10-year state um, because I think the hunting is so good down there. I don't know if I want to wait to draw the 
best tag or just draw a good tag and hunt it maybe three times in my life instead of one time. I like where your head's at. Yeah. Yep. I got a whole roster. Um, and I've been telling Dan about this and I've been showing him like these charts I make and these, these spreadsheets that I track my points and track seasons. And, you know, I got the every, Colorado and Idaho are the every year option. Colorado's the fallback option. Idaho's the plan, the, the people that plan out their life a little better. Cause you got to buy that one in December. Um, Montana and Wyoming general are good. Like three year options. They're getting worse, right? It's starting to be a four year option. And then you throw in the rest, right? You can throw in New Mexico as a wild card state. You never really know when you're going to draw, but like you said, depending on how aggressive you want to be, you could draw that every three years. Pretty easy. It might not be the best, but then mm-hmm. you get the special ones. Colorado, mm-hmm. the northwest corner of Colorado, Utah, Nevada. Those are the those are the Hail Mary states in my book, and I, that's kind of how I lay it out. You know, I'm going to try to hunt elk every year in either Wyoming, Montana, or Colorado. And I'm going to build points across the rest. Every five, ten years, I'm going to cash in on Arizona. Whenever the great state of Utah pulls my number, I'm going to cash in in Utah. And and we'll just see what happens. Yeah, I like where your head's at. After seeing Brian's spreadsheet, I am officially hiring him as my hunting broker. <laughs> <laughs> they, there's people that have made full-time businesses out of, out of that exact thing. Um, it's getting a little bit less common now, now that it is getting easier to apply to Western states. Not that it's easy by any means, but you used to have to like mail in your applications and look through the book to see what unit you wanted to apply to. Now you can usually Google everything you need to do and do it in about 15 minutes. Well, and everyone's perception is different. Like everyone has a different end goal. If you listen to, you know, like Corey Jacobson, like they did a podcast talking about the states to apply for and the states to ignore. And Utah was the worst state out of all of them to even try for. The the demand's too high. The number of permits is too low. Never apply for Utah. So keep your money to put it over here. But to their perspective, I, I don't know that 400 inch bulls are on the roster. They just want to kill elk and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so to, to validate both of you really like making Utah your wildcard state is pretty smart because let's build points. Let's go for it. I, I think tides are going to change here. Um, Utah this winter, they lowered the age class across the state. I think you might see, a trend kind of that varies a little bit like Arizona and Colorado. I think the Boulder, the Beaver, um, San Juan, you're going to see turn into unit two and 10 in Colorado to where even the guys with the max points going in with 34 points and still have less than 1% draw odds. I think it's going to be there because they're going to push all these guys that are 20 plus in for premium units because they want the best bull possible versus just cashing in and shooting a nice bull. And so some of these units are going to get harder. And then, but like all of Arizona, where we have a lot of options for like late archery, you're going to see a lot of guys able to hunt elk multiple times in their life. They might draw the late archery boulder tag six times in their life because it's only going to take five points. And a lot of people are mad about the whole point system changing or the age class dropping. Um, I haven't been too concerned about it. 
because in my opinion, I mean, I see just like right now, I have seven bulls that are over 11 years old. I have two that are 14. I don't know that anybody's even shot at these elk. Like they are hard to hunt and hard to kill. And I think I'm going to have two or three of those forever on that unit. I think it's possible. Um, whereas a lot of these units, I mean, we're going to, there's going to be places in Utah that you're just hunting to find the best bull you can, or possibly a six point. There's going to be a few of those units. Okay. That brings up a really interesting question to me. So the whitetail world, almost everyone pretty much understands it where your two-year-old buck's hitting about 50%, 60% of his max. Three is like 80, four is like 90, five is 95, and then they go to like six years old is 99%. So they're basically saying diminishing returns at five years old. And that's why the whole whitetail world puts like the bar at five, right? Some people are extreme and they push it to six or seven, but pretty much four or five years old. What's that age for an elk where you're really you're so close to the to the true potential that animal has that it's maybe not worth letting him go another year. Like you might get a little bit of inches. You also risk having a bad winter. He could get hurt. He could get shot by someone else. Where would you draw that bar as someone that really understands these these big bulls and 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 has seen it back across their lifetime? So that we're not you know this bull gets fourteen and he just goes off and dies. You know what I mean. It's really hard to say because genetics play a huge role in that. Um, Utah kind of has like this latitude, this, the the kind of run these units in a row that run east to west, right? Beaver, Dutton, Boulder, San Juan. They're all kind of on the same parallel and they just have these freak genetics. A six-year-old bull might make book. Whereas up on the north half of the state, it, it might be nine, 10 years old before that bull ha- even sees his potential. Um, but even on the good gene areas, I typically don't see bulls kind of really branch out till they're eight or nine years old. So it'd be nice if we kept a couple units that the age class was kept high, six years old plus. I, I don't know if they're kind of taking that into consideration. I, I have no idea what they're looking at, but um I don't know, MJ, you know, we talked about MJ earlier that Kyle killed. That bull was 14. And at 14 years old, that was his best year. I watched him go from 330 to 360 to 390 to 370. And, I mean, year after year after year after year, and for whatever reason, in 2017 at 14 years old, I mean, intact, that bull went 423. I, I don't know why. It, just a light winter went in with lots of fat didn't rut too hard i don't know what the like key was to all of that but it's hard to say i, I mean we all want to kill that six-year-old whitetail i i would think your key on elk is at least eight yeah that's a good perspective to put it basically double it for the whitetail um eight to ten and then I suppose after that, it's like you said, it all depends on the situation, the environment. How bad was the winter? How hard did he rut? How bad of a fight did he get in with another bull? Did he get an arrow in his shoulder? Um, anything can happen for like the next six, four, six years, and, and it can, mm-hmm. he can go up or down. I have heard reports of people that follow big animals, especially mule deer is an interesting one, where these bucks will 
they'll rut and they'll be, you know, part of the rut and that people watch them. And then for some reason, the next year they didn't rut at all. And people don't understand why, but they've, I've heard stories of like, yeah, we watched those bucks. They went up high. They never came down for the rut. And the year after that, they put on like 30 inches. Do you see some of that going on where like these bulls get older? Maybe they get their butt kicked and they quit rutting as hard and then they just eat and grow antlers and, and that can affect the size the following year. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty standard. Um, there's a biologist that used to talk about um, shirkers and, and they cross the board ungulate behavior where they, they would just skip the rut and the next year put on 60 inches, whatever it was. Um, I, I don't, I kind of think that's old man shit. <laughs> I, like, you know, the rut kicks in. So say, you know, the elk strip their velvet August 20th by September 5th, they're starting to call a little bit at nighttime. That's when I start seeing your 323 to 340 bulls starting to push cows around. It's like your freshman year in college, right? They're five, they might be six years old. This is their chance. They start pushing cows. By, by the time the rut really kicks in and the cows are in heat, those bulls are exhausted. Half the time they're just kind of skirting outside because they're beat and the 360 bulls taking over. Um, and typically when we start dealing with herd bulls, they are that 350 to 370 type bull. Once I start like looking at my older age class, like this guy, after he hit eight years old, I never saw him with cows again. Eight, he had lots of cows. He pushed them. But it was like he learned, you know, I can just follow the herd around. When I smell the hot cow, I have a big enough presence to go in, take her, pull her, do the thing, let her go. Go back to eating. Put on my fat again. I'm lazy. I'm old. I, it's like it's, it's old man shit. It's like, man, I, I like sex, but I don't like it that much. I don't want to fight you over it. Like, and I think that's kind of what happens. I, I don't know that genetically there's something in them that says that this year I'm taking this year off. I don't think that's a thing. I, I really think it's just a matter of age. Like I, I know better. I wonder if it's like you need a unit like that band in Utah to grow these bulls old so that they start to figure out what being an old bull means. And like they start teaching like, in a weird way, start teaching the younger bulls about it. And when you do these over-the-counter units in Colorado, none of the bulls get that old to figure it out. Like the the gen, maybe like the genetics you're talking about is like intelligence. Like these bulls get old enough, they get to be smarter, and they can just figure out like, hey, it works so much better if I just sit by myself. I don't get bothered. I'll know. I'll hear the whole valley go off, and I'll know that cow's in heat, and I'm big enough. I just walk right in, and just walk right out like you said and it just takes a unit to have enough old bulls that they start to figure it out and that's why you maybe don't see that in like over-the-counter colorado general unit montana well you see that with other things too like even with guys (laughs) you get yourself around some some guys who are well off or successful in business and your odds go way up of being successful in business same thing with training dogs, you know, like if you can get a dog around other dogs that are well-trained, whether it's for shed hunting or waterfowl or uh, hound hunting, it just makes sense that that dog is going to pick those things up a lot quicker. And so, yeah, I agree. I think it'd be awesome if, if we could just set a baseline of like setting up certain units to where they've got mature bulls and then the other bulls can kind of figure it out and maybe not wear themselves up 
out so much chasing after cows, or maybe those hormones are just going to take over anyway, and they're going to make really stupid choices. <laughs> I think you're both overthinking it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think elk are that smart. In fact, um, kind of when they get to that point, I notice bulls after like seven through like, say like, cause I only run cameras in the summer now, just due to the new law changes. I have to get them all pulled by August. But one thing that I really keyed in on the last like three years, old bulls don't run with any other bulls. It's not like I see a 390 bull and a 370 bull and a 330 bull in a group together. Never. They might still kind of be close. Like this bull had a guy named front loader. They used to kind of run around together and as they got older, they followed each other, but they wouldn't hang out. I, I would get one through and then I'd get one through and the next day, always by themselves. I think they just figure that stuff out. I think they get to where they're just tired and they learn, I'll just follow this herd. I'll still get some. I don't, I don't have to do the work. I don't think they need a mentor, right? That's, I guess that's my point. They're, they're not smart enough to mentor each other into working what I do notice, though, is cows, the matriarchs will kind of, the group will learn. Um, and I see rut behavior change when matriarchs get killed. So their migration routes will all come down to one cow. They're kind of being pushed down into a certain area or they know where to go to rut. It's typically the cow that's guiding them, not the bull that's hurting them. I think the herd word gets overused because the matriarch's the one that kind of makes those decisions. I will see behavior change with matriarch cows. That's funny. Yeah, I remember in North Dakota when I shot my bull, it was the lead cow that was directing it, and she also had some really, I would call it like bitchy cow calls, that eventually got that bull to stop raking and start following. And that mm -hmm. pulled them right through the window I needed it to. So I, I saw that and I was like, that cow definitely looked like she was like yelling back, like, come on, Roger. God damn it. Like, we're, we're leaving. Quit raking that tree. Um, and so I could definitely see what you're saying there. And I think it's kind of funny how it's, you know, it's almost like we need a fourth caliber of bull. Like we got raghorn satellite, herd bull, and then we got this like super satellite or senior satellite where they, you know, once they get past the herd bull, then they turn into almost a satellite again. And they just, but they do it a little, they're a lot more successful as a satellite. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're just spot on. I'm curious. What, what does the behavior look like day to day on what's what Brian's calling like a senior satellite bull? Uh, are they coming in and breeding one cow and then kind of backing out and taking a back seat again, coming back in a few days later? Or what does that behavior look like? Are you just seeing them way less than everything else? No, I, you know, it, 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 again, it comes down to kind of dates and actual like heat and the moon and all the other rough predetermined factors, if that makes sense. Like, I still think they might go in and hook two or three cows out in a day and they might even grab those three cows and go lock them down and come back. Um, I, I mean, to answer your question simply, it would be eating. Like I, I think more than a herd bull will do a herd bull won't even sit and eat because the second he does and one cow gets up, he's back on his feet, pushing her back into the group. Big bulls, still eat 
like you'll notice they are fat as can be come September, October 1st. They're still fat. Whereas your 330 bulls, your 350 bulls, you'll see their hips starting to pop out because they haven't eaten in three weeks. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, with with that then, I mean, late season or the late portion of the rut, are you seeing an increased activity from those senior satellite bulls because the other bulls are so worn down? No. Um, may, I mean, maybe. It's hard to say. It's not like I live with them. but I, um, So typically late season, the elk have migrated quite a ways. Um, I have bulls that'll pull almost 40 miles between August 20th and September 20th or October 5th. They move a long, long ways. And so to kind of monitor what their behavior might be, I, I can't really say, but um, I don't think they get more active ever. I think it all depends on the wind and if the cows are in heat and if they're not. I mean, if it comes August 4th, or October 4th, and they've all cycled and they're waiting for a second cycle, those bulls might wander off. They may not see another cow till next spring, you know, but sometimes I think they'll stick around and wait for a second cycle. So these bulls are more like middle-aged man. They're just kind of like, yeah, you know what? I had my fun days. I'm just going to hang back, drink a beer. If the ladies want what I got, you know, I'm here for them. If not, oh, well. It's old man shit. They're taking yeah. your grandpa's advice and they're gone fishing. <laughs> right. <laughs> how, how, on a given year, on an average year, obviously things go up, things go down, but what's, how many bulls do you have on your radar like these are bulls we're chasing this year here's a band that's going to be good in a couple years here's a few that i'm really interested in seeing what happens three four years from now but how many bulls are like on your radar they're big enough or old enough or unique enough that you know maybe they've earned a name um typically i walk in each year with about 10 like this year's 11 i have 11 bulls i had 14 last year three of them got killed 11 bulls that I've got to check in and see where they're at. But there's probably, I mean, just talking with it with one of my guides last night, I think I have four that I'm like, these four, they're going to hit book this year. We haven't named them. We don't, we're not like, we'll figure it out when we see them this year, if they're worth our time. But um, about 10, my worst years, like we had some drought years, like in 18, 19, that were pretty tough that I, I came through with maybe six bulls. But there's always just a small roster of bulls. Like, I got to keep tabs on these bulls enough to know whether they're dead because these guys purchasing the tags, nobody wants to drop 50 grand on a tag that might have a 350 bull. I like to show them, geez, we got six bulls that'll break book. Book's our goal. That's that's the whole goal is 375. That's what we want. It's just like whitetails, right? Except it's 175. It, your goal is to try to find an outfitter that will run book. And then you're like, okay, this guy's worth the six grand or whatever it is. Same thing with elk, but we're talking 375, less opportunity. Instead of six grand, we're talking 60 grand. Yeah, that's a big, that's a big jump up. And so I've heard you talk about it, and maybe it was a few years ago, where you said like, man, all these bulls I've had in my roster, they're all gone, every one of them. They either got shot, they got killed, they got they disappeared. Is it kind of hard to to close the chapter on a bull in his story and and you know 
look forward to next year when you know like your favorites are are gone. They're not going to be on trail camera next summer. I I think it was the year he died. I think he died in 19 rolling into 20. If you heard me say that it was probably in 2020. Um, Uno didn't show up. He kind of, he, like he was one of my favorite bulls for nine years running. I don't even know how old he was. Like even our first year chasing him, we called him 38 special. He was a 380 type bull. And that was like, I didn't, he just came out of left field. I don't know where he was. He could have been eight then, you know, and he might've just died of old age. My last picture of him would have been 2020, August 28th, still full velvet and just skinny as could be. His hips were popped out and he was at 11,000 feet, which wasn't his normal turf. He didn't typically walk up that high. And so I don't know if he just decided he was going to work his way up that spring and find a good place and die but he's gone. Nobody killed him that I know of. The 2020, I was frustrated because Chunky was dead. Uno was dead. Like some of my top three of all time bulls gone. But at the same time, I still had bulls that on the come up, you know, we, we killed a bull called Hansel that year that the year prior was 390. I think we killed him in the three seventies, but huge back end, giant bull made the cover of three magazines. He was cool. Like, there's always something. Yeah. And do you, when you follow these bulls, the, the bulls that make it on the roster, whether they're ready or not, I mean, I'm sure there's some bulls you're looking at and you're like, I really like what I'm seeing as a six-year-old. I really want to find him and keep him in the roster until he's eight, nine, 10, 11. Do you really try to find these specific bulls sheds each spring? Cause I know you're a big shed hunter or are you just looking for antlers? Like, I just want to get out and find some antlers. I just do for antlers. Like shed season for me is just, in fact, I don't even go down in that country. I used to, um, I, you've heard of times up when times up got rolling, they kind of took over some of my old spots. <laughs> I completely backed off some of that country. Um, most of the shed hunting I do is a little here closer to home. I can keep tabs on those bulls better. It's a four hour drive down to the boulder. And so I, I have a lot of local bulls. I try to watch here and, and I'm okay. Like, Dude, as far as sheds go, I, I find something brown. I'm happy. I don't need to find a 390 set. I, it's just exercise. Yeah. Dan and I are working on a trip to south east, southwestern Colorado, northern Arizona, northern New Mexico with a, a, a guy that shed hunts a lot down there this April. So we're really excited. Just before the show, we were talking like, man, if we just find a brown elk shed, because we're flatlanders, right? We I mean, we live in flatlander central USA. So if we find a brown elk shed and a brown mule deer shed, we're both going to be just tickled pink. Sheds are sheds. I mean, it's funny. People do like podcasts and talk about shed hunting. I I remember Brian called me. I wanted to do a show. And then he's like, hey, I just want to talk shed hunting. That's all I want to talk. Like give people secrets. I'm like, dude, there's no secrets. Like I I don't want to be known as the shed hunting guy because you don't have to get the wind right. There's no secrets. There's no I mean, you scout just like you do hunting. If I can give anyone advice on shed hunting, it's you got to scout. Get out, watch them, see where they're at in February, see what's alive. Look for your age class. Like, there's still secrets, but it's not like, yeah, dude, you're just walking. It's just exercise. <laughs> if I, you take for more than that, you're going to come home miserable every time because the odds of success are really low. 
I think- Ryan, I'm curious. You you were talking uh, a little bit ago, and I just want to jump back to it for a second, knowing now that there's no secrets to shed hunting, and I can go out there and find a bunch of big sheds. Uh, I I'm curious uh, between you know six and fourteen big bulls that you're after each year. How many square miles is that that you've got access to, or that you're tracking these? I mean, are these all relatively close in the state? Or is this spread out over hundreds and hundreds of miles that you're picking up these bulls? Um, hundreds. Hey, there's a lot of miles. I, I have a really good team. I, I wish I could. There was a time when it was just me and one other guy, like my guy, Aaron. We, we did things just me and him for 10 years. Um, anymore, I have six guys that help me, and most of them are better hunters than I am. That, like I have a phenomenal team. I can't say enough good things about them. Like it, if, it, like if I could sit and brag, I mean, I think the last five day early season, we knocked out, I think we averaged 389. Oh my God. And those guys, the smallest bull they killed was it was only cause he was busted. I mean, these guys were knocking out some of the biggest bulls in the state and, and we followed the rules last year utah had a rule change like one you had to pull all your cameras two it was a one guide one spotter rule a lot of the outfitters still ran 20 guides and they just said oh we're not paying them and that's their loophole um i made my guys i said one you're not putting any cameras out we're pulling every single one which we did and two one guide one spotter that's all you're doing stay on it and they all succeeded. They killed some of the biggest bulls in the state following every single rule. I'm proud of them about it. Like, I'm telling you, I got a good team. So I got two questions. We're coming up on an hour, and I want to respect your time. But, man, we're talking giant elk, so I got to – it's hard for me to close it. So I got a couple questions. What's it look like when, say, I draw the tag? I, I make it through the 0.4% chance net and I get my tag, and I reach out to you, and I say, hey, Ryan, let's do it. I don't care what it takes on my end. I'll figure it out. Do you then say, awesome, like, here's my roster. Do any of these bulls excite you? Like, which one's your favorite? And I say, hey, man, I really like this bull. It's If I'm doing archery, then do you say, okay, that this bull's living here. You're going to go with this guy and this spotter. You're heading here. Dan gets drawn. He likes a different bull, so he's going clear across the unit to a different spot with a different guide or is it mostly like i just want to come hunt elk and they're all great like i would take any of them i don't care let, let wherever you think is the best place how what's the breakdown of what people ask for when they come hunt with you um everything's perspective and expectation and and that's i start every guy that calls me i have a conversation with what's your expectation and I listen to their expectation and kind of get try to get a feel of what their perspective is. A lot of times I'll refer them to another outfitter. I want to hunt with guys that make guides look good. And by that, I mean, I want guys who are going to work. I want guys who've killed a few bulls. I really struggle with these guys that have waited 20 years to come hunt elk that don't kill elk. They're hard. Those are the guys that ball up and cry on day five. Um, I have a hard time with the guys that like to name drop, that tell me who they've hunted with and who sponsors them. And I have a hard time with those guys. Not all of them, but some of them. 
And so I like to listen to perspective and expectation before I ever even talk numbers. Um, price is one thing and price can be adjusted. Like, man, you're going to take some weight off my shoulders. Like price can be evaluated because I, I want guys who just want to hunt. I want my clients to make my guides look awesome. And I, I know that sounds like so stupid and it's not the way that most guys do it, but in all reality, those are the guys that, that that's why we're so successful is I like to pick and choose. These guys are going to do a great job. They're going to work hard. They're family oriented. Yeah. They're trying to bring four of their brothers, but that's okay. We'll put them over here because hunting is family. So, and, and even when it's not family, it is family. But a lot of times I still have lunch with clients that I guided 15 years ago. Yeah. I like the way you put that. Um, because my brother has been in the same boat. He bought a, an elk. He was going to buy an elk hunt for my dad for Christmas guided elk hunt. And, and so he was talking, I'm pretty sure it was Jake Clark in Wyoming, probably a generation or two above older than you, um, back in like the early two thousands. And he was, you know, going by then, and my brother, like halfway through the phone call, he's like, it sounds like you're interviewing me. And Jake goes, of course I am. Like, I, I'm i at the point where I'm picking and choosing who I bring. It, I mean, we're going 20 miles in on meals, and you're going to live with my guys for nine days. I'm definitely interviewing you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 100%. I mean, that's just – that's – that's what we do. Like we learn, we, we have some, a few rough guys and we're like, okay, I'm not going through that again because there's a lot of hunters that just, they're hard. They do not know what they're getting into. They have no idea what it's going to take. And they're always the guys with the highest expectations. They're always the guys going this is 24 years. I'm not shooting anything under 410. <laughs> Dude, there's not a 410 walking in the state of Utah as of this moment right now, not one. So your expectations are too high. Here's the phone numbers to three other guys. Yeah. yeah. You might want to trade your tag for a, a landowner tag in, in Texas because uh, that's where the 410s live right now. Right. Um, so I heard you say briefly, I'm pretty sure it was on with Brian Call, that there was a bull a few years back in Colorado that you were looking really hard at trying to find a way to hunt. And I'm just curious mm -hmm. what bull that was. Um. Well, that, that was a bull we called Rudy, um, and we never killed him. I, I got to chase him for two years. Okay. Uh, but he, he lived on a national park. He kind of swung in and out into a couple pieces of private property. Um, the pieces I could get on were the closest ones, and he just knew the fence lines good enough that he outplayed me over and over and over and over again. I, like – Hats off to that bull because he had Ryan Carter's number. Is so there was a giant bull in RMNP with he was known for massive thirds. He was on the cover of everything. I mean, every out Western photographer in the world took pictures of this bull. Is that the same bull? And you just named him something else, or do you know which bull uh, I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, okay. A completely different park. Yeah. Because when I heard you say that, 
closer to my turf here here in Utah, not over on the park. Yeah. Okay, because when I heard you say that, it was the same time that this bull was on the cover of every Instagram page in the world. It was the year he had those giant thirds. He was like a clean seven. And then you're also talking mysteriously about this bull that's really famous. He lives on a park. I think we might be able to get him, though. And I was just curious if that was the same, the same bull, because that was – I'm sure both bulls were a monster, but that one was a monster as well. No, he he never had that kind of fame. That the bull I was hunting had fame in certain circles. Um, that like a lot of people knew about that bull, but it wasn't like he was not the bull that you're talking about. That that guy was mega famous. In fact, if if we had to look back on on famous bulls the last like 10, 15 years, it would be that bull and maybe the spider bull. You know, like the like that that bull went big, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Arizona bull got pretty famous, but I think the difference was that that bull. I, what is his name? Brutus or something? Bruno? Um, uh, all the guys that named him were photographers, and I heard three or four different names. So yeah, he uh, just passed away um, of old age, or, or eventually old age. Something probably killed him, but he was old. I he think the difference. He, he got bored, yeah. The difference was he stood in front of every family that came through RMNP for like five years. That's how he got so famous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so how that? I guess that's a good maybe final question. How often do you get as an outfitter and a guide? How often do you get to go out and and put yourself behind the bow or the rifle, whether it's in Utah or other states across the country? How often do you get a chance to hunt elk hunt yourself without like uh, being a guide? Just Ryan Carter. I'm out in the woods trying to punch my own tag. I, to be perfectly honest, I, I have no interest in killing an elk. Another elk is, I just, it's not there. I, I like elk hunting and I like seeing other people succeed. Um, this is one of nine bulls in my house. Um, I, I don't need to kill another elk. I'm not really fond of elk meat. I, I'll eat a whitetail or axis deer over an elk any day. So, you know, I, I'm kind of picking up different habits. Like most of my points in the West right now are all on sheep and deer. So hopefully I start drawing some tags. Is that a product? Do you think that's a product of being an elk guide all these years that you've been there, you've done it, it now you're on personally, you're on to other things because your job has been elk hunting and getting these elk for clients and friends for so long. Not at all. I, I think it's um just a matter of, um, I, I don't need, I, I I don't need uh, any validation in, in the elk world. I, I don't need, I, I don't need the meat. I don't need the, the opportunity. I'd rather, I would rather show up on a buddy's hunt in New Mexico and shoot a three thirty bull with my best friend than have my own tag in unit nine, Arizona, even though that'd be fun. I, it's just not on my priority list. Okay. I, I think, personally I've, I've kind of moved on to some other stuff that's cool to hear though like someone that's done it and it's done it to the level that you've done it to say no to me elk hunting is all about helping my friends and the people i care about make memories and just watching these animals like that's elk hunting to me it's not punching tags anymore that's really cool to hear that hear someone say that that's doing it at a level that you're doing it at well it's, it's nice of you to say but in, in all reality, I, I just think I've just learned I, I enjoy mentoring as far as that goes better than I do actually hunting. And when I was talking earlier about scheming, 
it's why I bow hunt. I, I enjoy the hunt. I, I am not the type of person that just loves the kill. I'm never high-fiving. I hate watching elk die. I know it sounds so gay. Man, that's just how I am. I, I just, I love trying to figure these things out and put pieces together. Um, it's why I'm not a big rut hunter. I'd, I'd rather do the bow guys. I, I enjoy scheming. Yeah. And so, and, and that's why I like whitetail hunting. I still like mule deer hunting, but mule deer and I know a lot of guys don't know, but I've killed some giant deer with clients back in the day. I'm just saying, you find them, you get the wind right, they're dead. There's no scheming. Whitetails are scheming, and there's rut behavior, and there's pulling them in. Same with elk, and I enjoy that stuff. I get it out of access deer, too. I like it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, any plans to you know go build or buy or work on a, like a whitetail farm out in the flatland. I know you travel a lot for whitetail hunting, but do you have, do you do any of your own like habitat management and, and just watching your own herd or you just, you just want to go and spend a week doing it with different places? No, because I, you know, I had a lease in Nebraska that we kind of did for, I don't know, 10, 11 years. And it was cool, but we, we couldn't get the age class up because there were still rifle guys. We yeah. took control of the bow hunting portion of that, but, they would come in and slaughter them on rifles. So I never had an opportunity to really go at that. And even then, I don't know that I ever want to do that. I love seeing new spots and meeting new people. And mm -hmm. even like, say when I go, when I draw Kansas every other year, or every three years, I like to kind of go hit a new spot because it's Kansas. Like they, I mean, there's all kinds of terrain and all kinds of things you can do. Same with Indiana and Illinois and Iowa. And man, I want to go everywhere. So I don't want to limit myself to one spot until maybe, maybe when I'm old and have a bunch of money that I can pick up my own piece and start doing some ag maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think you got the same bug that Dan's got. He is a traveler, man. He goes all over the country and, and him and his family are checking. He's got the, he says the same thing. He's on mute right now. I don't know if he's driving, but. Oh no, I'm I'm definitely I'm just soaking in everything I'm hearing. I I want to get to that point in life where I've shot nine monsters and just help other people get big bulls. But I talk about that on on the Nomadic Outdoorsman podcast a lot as the progression of a hunter. It's like you get to the point where you love it, you still love it, you you love the memories that you made doing it, but helping someone else experience that same thing is like the next level. Um, but yeah, I, I like traveling, man. I like going new places, new experiences. I like to try everything before I form a strong opinion about it. And, uh, archery, archery elk is going to be that next thing. Awesome. Well, it's, we're going on an hour 16, about 15 minutes ago, I was trying to wrap this up, but just talking about elk and hunting and, and especially big bulls. And I, I, I get sunk. I go down the rabbit hole and I almost can't stop. So, but we do appreciate you being here, Ryan. I want to give you a chance to, to make some shout outs where people can follow you on social media. If anyone listening to this happens to draw the Utah tag and they want to go out hunting with you, give them a chance to, to give you a connect with you, whether that's the website or, or your page. Yeah. I, you know what? I, I respond to most people through social media um, all the handles are the same. It's Ryan DC Outfitters or Ryan DCO. Um, yeah, and I, man, I 
I have a really good crew. I like if I ever give shout outs, it'd be to those guys. I, I just love working with my guys. I, you know, in fact, I, I don't last year I guided one guy and this year's probably going to be the same. I, I ended up spending a lot of time helping my clients and, and my guides. So I'd show up as the spotter. Hey, where are we going today? Just kind of energize camp and get people moving. And I, I see myself in the future that like my role is going to be mentoring. And I love that portion of it. And so that's kind of what I'm going to be doing. And that's where you can find me. Um, I haven't been great. I think last year I did a total of like 13 posts or something. I've, I've kind of fallen off the radar, but um, the stuff I still do put out, I make sure it's something awesome and something to share with the world and kind of make some jaws drop um, because we do have a lot of cool stuff going on. If, if I only make one request, I would request that you bring back Super Bowl Sunday because it was so much more entertaining watching your story than the actual football game of all these people sending in big bowls and, and you can just scroll through picture after picture, a Colorado giant, a Utah giant, a North Dakota giant. I mean, that was, I remember when you were doing Super Bowl Sunday, it was, that was a great Instagram series. Uh, it makes me feel bad. I didn't jump on that. I, you know, it was, I used to do that and I'd do a shed contest kind of thing. Like, Hey, show me your photos. Let's see who can do this. And I'd let people vote and I'd round up a bunch of prizes and it ended up always being a lot of work on my plate. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not like I was getting much out of it, but you're right. I, I probably need to jump back on those things and just to kind of amp the community up a little more because that stuff was always fun. Yeah. Well, no matter how hard you try not to be the shed guy, I feel like you are the guy that made it cool to hold elk sheds upside down. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm only 5'10", so it's like you flip them upside down and they look big. <laughs> it's a lot easier to hold them, too, that way. I agree. I Like you flip them up the other way and it's hard. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, Ryan. I appreciate it. Um, anytime you got anything cool going on and you want to hop back on, you're, you're a 24-7. You're a welcome guest to the Western Rookie Podcast. That. So thanks for being appreciate here. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for Thanks for listening, folks. Mm-hmm.